Welcome to Read My Lips Radio, a lively hour of unscripted conversations with savvy creatives. Producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, asks novelists, artists, photographers, designers, comedians, actors, musicians, composers, screenwriters, directors, and technology innovators about their creative passion, inspirational muses, and how they create. Ooh, how those lips can talk. Now, here's AKA Radio Red. <laughs> Happy to be here. We're here on Zoom. Zoom had some problems around the country today, but it is working for us. This is Read My Lips Radio, cool conversations with creatives. And I just love talking to my creatives. I am red for this show. I have a lot of other names. We've all been called lots of names. I'm just going to be red. Today is August 24th. Can you believe it? And all I can say is thank goodness 2020 is almost over. And hopefully a lot of things will be behind us then. I have two fascinating guests. One is a newcomer to Read My Lips. The other one has been on a few weeks ago and is sending me a lot of very interesting other characters, I'll say, for this show. So let me tell you who my guests are, and then we'll go back and do the housekeeping, and I will ask my guests to respond to the national holidays and some of the famous birthdays. We'll have fun with that. So first up in a moment, and we're calling this my well-read savvy creators, and we're saying let's drink to creativity, and I'll tell you why in a minute. First up, I am going to be very privileged to introduce you to Betty. She spells her first name B-E-T-T-Y-E. That's a new one for me, Kearse, K-E-A-R-S-E. She was researching her memoir, and she'll tell us a little bit about it. The title, very serious book, The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. She was. She is also, Betty is a retired pediatrician. We'll find out about what, what, what life was like as a pediatrician. I have a family member who is, and I know that's not an easy life to do. That's not an easy profession. And she discovered that there was something very interesting about President James Madison and his wife, Dolly, when they entertained. We're going to talk, Betty has done about her research about food and wine in the White House at that time. No, this is not a political conversation, and we're not comparing presidents and wives and entertaining styles. It just is some really, really interesting stuff about how creatively they used what people imbibed and what people ate and how they changed the tables at these grand dinners. So we're very excited to have Betty on, and she will tell us whether, in fact, Dolly Madison interesting spelling to the real Dolly versus the one you all know on the ice cream label. It's not around anymore, but whether Dolly started her own ice cream brand, we're going to find that out from Betty. And also I'm welcoming back very special lady, Susan Corso. She, I think Susan's middle name is Susan Creativity Corso. I have to say that she is an ordained, she's smiling and yes, up and down ordained minister. She's a spiritual counselor. She's been doing this for over 30 years. She worked on Broadway and she writes really, 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 really cool mystery books. And I have read parts of two of them. And it, it's just like a walk through a, I don't know, a crayon box, I want to say. Everything is so interesting. You, you never know what's going to pop up. Her people, the plots, you don't plots, you read the plots, the <laughs> scenery, the sights, the clothing, the architecture. Uh, I, Betty would probably love some of Susan's novels. Uh, so I'm going to suggest the two of you exchange some books after the show. And Susan is going to talk again. We're going to find out how she picked her pseudonym, Vivian Hart Quinn, with two T's on heart. 
two N's in Vivian and two N's in Quinn. I don't know if you knew that, Susan, but that's a lot of double letters. And this is a butch femme romance series called Boots and Boas. Uh-huh. And I've been reading a little bit about some of them. I've been reading a couple of them. And we're going to talk about how Susan puts her prose together. It's just fascinating. So I'm glad you're all here. This is Read My Lips Radio. Cool conversations with creatives. And oh, yes, how these lips can talk. So welcome, Betty. Say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody, and I'm so happy to be on Read My Lips. Thank you. And I met Betty at the Virtual Publicity Summit many months ago, and I was so intrigued with her research and the very serious topic of your book, Betty. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And Susan, you accepted my invitation to come back. Are you happy to be here, Susan Corso? Oh. Of course. Redheads have to be loyal to one another. There you go. There you go. Let's do a little housekeeping now before my guests give you their full bios. This is interesting. Of course, we have to do a shout out to LLL. And I have a suggestion for you. LLL is lovely, lanky, lovely, lanky Laura Legs, our most loyal listener. Okay. Our loyalist, loyal listener, longtime listener. And Laura lives in a place called Whitestone, New York. It's in the Queens area, not Long Island, but we were going to send her to London because it starts with Ellen. Susan, Laura, Susan suggested that we just have you move to Larchmont because it's an L and it's not as big a GoFundMe to move you to Larchmont from Whitestone as it would be to London. So Laura, we have a change of plans on where we're moving you to get those L's. So let's do a couple of famous birthdays, by the way, August 24th, this is the 236th day of the Gregorian calendar, but it's a leap year. So this is the 237th day. I don't know why they don't just tell you that and not make you add the number. And okay, breaking news, 129 days to the end of 2020. Not much time. Not much time in real people years, people days, people minutes, people hours to get a bottle of something special ready for New Year's Eve because, damn, it's going to be a good one. Let's just get rid of 2020. Betty, what would you, anything you plan to drink on New Year's Eve? I know we're looking ahead a little bit, but any thoughts on what you would like to, to grab once the liquor stores are open? Well, you know what? President Madison's favorite wine was Madeira. Ah. So I, I think I'll get some of that. Oh, that's interesting. And Susan, what'll be on your table or in your in your glass, your wine, your stein, your goblet? Well, um, I gave up drinking lots and lots and lots of years ago. So uh, probably Earl Grey tea. Ooh, nice. Do you like the, do you ever have Lady Grey, which has lavender in it? And no. bergamot? I think it has lavender and bergamot in it. Good well, try. Earl Grey has bergamot, certainly. Try looking for Lady Grey. I think you might enjoy that. It's, you I just will. want to inhale the tea bags. No comment, no comment after that. So ladies, I'm going to tell you some national holidays coming up and I, I want to get a quick reaction. So August 23rd, now today, that was yesterday, but I had to put this in. It was National Cheap Flight Day. Okay, I don't know who's flying anymore, but that was it. It was National Cubano Day. Cuban Sam, anybody ever been to um, a Tito Puente's restaurant on City Island in New York where they serve Cubanos? It's a grilled sandwich with with ham and cheese. And other, Betty, have you ever had a Cubano? I don't think so. It's an interesting, look it up and see if you could figure out a way to make it home. So it's Cuban Sandwich Day nationally. And also, okay. here's something everybody loves. Yesterday was National Sponge Cake Day. Anybody like sponge cake? Yes. Susan, Chocolate. not so sure. Okay. Chocolate. Betty and I are going to go out and have sponge cake after the show. Today is National Waffle Day. 
who doesn't love waffles, uh, and National Kobe Bryant Day. I didn't know he had a name named after him a day. So happy whatever. It's not even his birthday. What can I tell you? Tomorrow is National Banana Split Day and Secondhand Wardrobe Day. Ah, <laughs> Time to head, head to the, thr- the thrift shop, right? Secondhand or borrow clothes from somebody. 26 is National Dog Day. Okay, I'll call up my grand puppies and say hello to them. National Just Because Day is the 27th. Hmm? That's Friday, 24, 25, 26. 20. That's actually 24, 25, 26, 20. That's Thursday, Just Because Day. Okay, the 28th is Red Wine Day. There we go. Betty, we'll get some red wine for you for there, maybe Madeira. And then August 29th is National Lemon Juice Day. I don't really know what to do with that one. Lemon juice day. Squeeze it over a salad. What can I tell you? Let's do some famous birthdays and then let's get on with it. Today, everybody say happy birthday. Ann Archer, American actress and producer. Paulo Coelho, the Brazilian author and songwriter. Yes. Brilliant man. Those were both both born today. So Ann Archer could be Paulo Coelho's sister or he could be her brother. Jim Fox, the only reason he's in here the same day is because he's an American rock drummer. And I'm a drummer. He was also an organist. He's around. Stephen Fry, the English actor, producer, and screenwriter. Happy birthday. Steve Gutenberg. I think everybody knows him from something. American actor and producer. Happy birthday, Steve. Cal Ripken Jr., American baseball player and coach. Famous. Marley Matlin, the marvelous Marley Matlin. Actress and producer who signs most of her roles. Uh, Very, very well-known actress. Mm -hmm. I saw her recently. She had a role in one of the series, one of the seasons of The L Word. I'll just leave that one on the table. A very interesting series. And she played a brilliant sculptor and college instructor. Interesting. Uh, Ava DuVernay is born today. Dave Chappelle. Everybody knows Dave Chappelle, comedian, actor, producer. Everybody's a producer and screenwriter today, I swear. That's what, And I also found uh, somebody who's having a birthday today. I have no idea if it's a man or a woman, but the name intrigued me. Kaki, K-A-K-I, King. Kaki King, American guitarist and composer. So everybody say, happy birthday, Betty. Happy Susan. Birthday. Happy, happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> okay, good. Now we get on with the show. Betty Kearse, so happy to have you here, Betty Please give us your formal bio and how you came to discover what the medicines were eating and drinking. Go ahead, Betty. Oh, well, my bio really is formal. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree from the University of California at Berkeley in genetics. I have a PhD from NYU in biology and an MD uh, from Case Western Reserve in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And I practiced pediatrics for 31 years in inner city Boston. And I've done um, genetics research and um, have an interest in kids with developmental and um, physical uh, problems. But I have always had creative urges My first was, if I could have been anything in the world at all, I would have been a dancer. I just love dance and the movement. But I have flat feet and knock knees and poor balance and all kinds of things that keep me from, kept me from being another Judith Jameson. Um, But I've also loved writing. And when I was in junior high, I told my, my English teacher, I wanted to be a writer. And so I've, I've always written, and that's how 
I'm creative. I, I love writing and I'm at my best when I'm writing. And Betty, you did a lot of research for your book. Why don't you briefly tell us how far and wide you had to travel and, and investigate oh. the background for the book. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Sure. Well, um, I'm the descendant of President James Madison and a slave. So in fact, his only descendants are Black, and, and I am one of them. And in 1990, I became my family's griot, which is a West African term for uh, oral historian. Mm. And I have my family has a credo that says, always remember, you're a Madison. You come from African slaves and a president. So this has guided us for 200 years. But for me, it resounded with the abuses of slavery. So I had to figure out what the slavery thing was all about and how I felt about this credo. So I traveled to Lagos, Portugal, where the transatlantic slave trade began, to Ghana, West Africa, for where my first African ancestor was born, my first African ancestor in America was born, um, I went to Baltimore, Maryland, where there's a replica of a slave ship in a museum, and to Central Texas, where my great-great-grandparents and their eight sons were living at the time they were emancipated from slavery. I went to New York because um, an 18th century African burial ground had been discovered there. And then I went many times to President Madison's plantation in Virginia, where some of my ancestors labored and died. Very, very interesting. And I have to tell our listeners that, Betty, you are sitting in, a, in front of a virtual background. And tell me what it is, please. It is President Madison's plantation in Virginia. It's called Montpelier. Montpelier, I think we've all read about that in, in the, whatever books we were studying in history. I don't know what the history books are going to do about this period of time. Thank you, Betty. So nice to meet you and looking forward to learning more about the food and drink in that gorgeous house behind you. Well, it was in the White House, but we'll find out a little bit about their lifestyle in Montpelier as well. Susan Corso, welcome back again. Susan, in case there might be two people in the world who didn't hear you a couple of weeks ago on my show. I, I can't even imagine that they weren't glued to the radio that day. But just in case they weren't, would you please reintroduce yourself? I mentioned, I think your middle name is, Su I think it's Susan Creativity Corso. I'm convinced you have reinvented, invented, and, and just done so much with your life. And, and, and you look like a kid to me. You're still a very young girl. And so <laughs> clean living, clean living. <laughs> there we go. Susan told me not to not to get the Nespresso out and start drinking caffeine again. She said, I'll live longer if I don't. So maybe I'll put it back after the show. Susan, reintroduce yourself, please. And well, welcome. It completely intrigues me that Betty just called herself a griot because in my eighth mystery novel, which is called Legally Bond, um, <laughs> There is a deus ex machina, the, the energy that comes and transforms the entire story was someone who called himself a griot. Ooh. And his name was Brother Blue. And Brother Blue was a very well-known storyteller in Cambridge and in Boston, where I lived for 10 years. And that particular book takes place in Boston. So I thought, wow, what was the likelihood of all the guests that Red could have 
here is someone who's using words that I live with, which is so fun for me. But I write several series of mystery novels. Um, most of the time I spend my time writing and researching, but in my other life, if you will, uh, since I was 25, people have come to me to say, help me figure out how to think about things. Help me figure out how to be clear about things. So that's really what I use writing for, for me. I, every single novel I write has a social justice issue in it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I figure out by my own writing as I as I write the stories, I figure out what my own opinions are, mm -hmm. what what I think about things, why I think about things the way I do, um, what it means to, for example, deal with domestic violence, which is the one I'm writing right now, what it means to deal with opioid addiction in our world and how we're handling it, that kind of stuff. Very, very interesting. Susan, I want you to talk a little bit as well about the other series, the Tex-Mex Mysteries, which are based on your experience on Broadway. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you did on Broadway? You just kind of buried it in your bio, Susan. You don't make a big deal out of it. And I've no. read it more. And you, come on, who, for whom did you work? What was it? Come okay. on, let's okay, give it. Okay. So I worked, for, I worked for Cameron McIntosh. I was Cameron McIntosh's original New York office. I was the janitor and I was the vice president all at the same time. So now Cameron McIntosh is the man who produced Cats, yep. Phantom of the Opera, yep. Les Miserables. Yep. So I did big, fancy shows. Um, the opening night of Cats, I was standing in front of the theater with a ticket in my hand and I had arranged where everybody was gonna sit. And a man walked up to me and said, I'll give you a thousand dollars for that ticket. And what? you know, at that point I was earning like, you know, $180 a week. <laughs> I, I said, um, you know, if I do it once, I'll do it again. So no, but, but thanks for the opportunity <laughs> to say no. So yes, I worked on three Broadway. months salary. So what was it like? What, what you, can you give us the year, Susan, when you were there? Um, cats sort of, in, well, cats opened in 1982. So yes, it was a while ago. Um, and what was it like? It was magical. It, it was, I liked the production side better than the acting side, although I did do some acting. Um, but it, the production side is to have the vision, the whole creative vision and to enlist absolutely everybody in it. And that is what I found empowering and exciting. And so when you read, when you wrote the, I'm going to go back to Gallery View, when you wrote the Tex-Mex mysteries, they were based on Broadway scenarios at, at shows. And uh, Betty, you'll get a kick out of this. The plots are all, I'll call them being sleuthed out by Tex Mex, by, te by Mex. And Mex is using the lyrics of the Broadway songs to find the solution to solve the crimes. Am I right on that, Susan? You are. You are indeed. You are indeed. You, nobody knows that actually musicals are ciphers. And they, they actually teach the lessons of life. I mean, you think about this, a, a, a re, an old fashioned musical, Oklahoma, right? Mm -hmm. uh, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. But there's a whole lot of other things that happen in Oklahoma. Somebody is jealous. The farmer and the cowman aren't getting along. So we have union problems, right? There's generational issues. 
There's all kinds of things that are simply implicit. It's like in South Pacific, right? There's a song called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught mm -hmm. to Hate and Fear. Well, Oscar Hammerstein was a genius, actually. And he's, it, it, musicals teach us if we'll let ourselves learn from them. And you know something? Uh, I think we can all remember, I think they call it mnemonics. Betty, you might be familiar with this. When we were all in school, some of us say we could remember commercials from when we were growing up more than we could remember lessons in the classroom because music... Right, Susan? And right, Betty, music gets into our heads. Those jingles, those clever ways of putting things together are things that, who doesn't remember the Brill Cream ad? Anybody remember? Brill Cream, a little dabble, do ya? Da, da. Right. right? Well, well, why in the world would I remember that? I'm not telling you how old I am, but for goodness sake. I'll tell you why. There's actually a biological reason. It's because Is there? When, yes, when there are lyrics and there's music, both sides of your brain are working together. Okay. Interesting. So the lyric threads through one side and the music threads through the other side and they come together much more easily than just the lyrics like poetry or just the music like classical music. And just like, not like lessons in math and how to add and subtract and how to do your advanced times tables. Betty, you lived in Boston. You're a pediatrician there. Did you go to theater? Is that something that you did? Did you, cause I, I lived did. in Cambridge. So tell me about your experiences with, with that part of Boston. Well, first of all, I did hear about brother blue years ago. Is he still around? Well, he's on the other side at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. But years ago I, I did hear him. Um, you know, he was quite a, a storyteller. Oh. But yes, it, in Boston, I had it's ballet. And I had front row mezzanine. And, and you know, I went to every, um, every, every, I saw every ballet. And, you know, Boston does have a lively theater scene. So I actually saw South Pacific. In, in Boston, and you know, I certainly remember the songs. Um, Boston also had, I don't know if it's, it's kind of fading, we had a great jazz scene, mm -hmm. several um, really nice, you know, jazz places. But I miss, now I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And you're not part of that Northeast scene, Betty. I remember having uh, buying a season subscription to, I think, uh, a smaller theater in Boston when I lived in Cambridge. And the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater came. And I remember seeing Judith Jameson. You mentioned yeah. her, that you, you wanted to be a dancer. I remember seeing Judith Jameson and others of the, the early or the original ballet, ballet series. I remember um, the Boston Symphony Orchestra. We had tickets to that, I think. My mother or my husband's mother at the time gifted us with a subscription for, it for for a year. And we got to go between Boston Symphony Hall and another smaller theater to see orchestras. I think we saw Dave Brubeck's jazz mm -hmm. on stage there. Uh, these, these were the days when live shows just, well, this was way, way, way before everybody could carry around a cell phone with music streaming from Pandora and all the other streaming services. These, these were the days in the three of us 
I'm with like-minded people on the show today. I don't know why I brought up the Brill King commercial because I have two other, two women on the show with me today, but you never know what the memory is going to do. So Betty, let's talk a little bit about James and Dolly Madison. First of all, you have to put it to rest. Did Dolly Madison start an ice cream line, yes or no? Well, she is fabled to have invented ice cream. And that's not true at all. <laughs> it was kind of a larger than life person who got credit for all kinds of things. But um, the first kind of frozen sweet flavored dessert was in, in you know, ancient Rome. So think, um, what do you call those things? Ice. Um, ice cones. Uh, ice cone. Yeah, ice okay. cones is another word. But anyway, ice okay. cones and togas. Yeah. And then that so that was in ancient Rome. But the first sort of frozen ice dessert was in China in the 14th century. So this is way before Dolly. And when it came to the United States, probably in the um, 18th, early 18th century. But the first president well, actually, I'm going to quote Hillary Hicks. She's the head historian at mm -hmm. Montpelier. So Hillary Hicks says that both Marsha Washington and Thomas Jefferson got the scoop on Dolly <laughs> as, far as, as ice cream. But as I said, Dolly was so, um, so much a bigger than life person. She got credit for inventing ice cream. And you know she served it whenever possible, so it became kind of associated with her. So um, she was the first first lady, mm -hmm. and she became known as Queen Dolly. And it was actually at her funeral, which was one of the largest in D.C., that Zachary Taylor dubbed her the first lady. First, first lady. But, Interesting. And, and she apparently she was only 26 and a widow by the time she met Madison. He was a 43 year old bachelor. So there was a significant age difference. And who introduced them? That's an interesting story. If you know the backstory, who introduced them? Yeah, none other than Aaron Burr. Whoa. And yes. how that happened was that Dolly had come from a fairly well off family in Virginia, but her father, they were Quakers and her father decided that the right thing to do was to sell all their slaves, to free all their slaves. He didn't sell them, he freed them. And he couldn't manage their plantation alone. Mm. So he moved to Philadelphia and tried to make a living selling starch, which didn't work out at all. <laughs> and he became bankrupt. And because he was bankrupt, he got quick kicked out of the Quakers. He became depressed and died. But Dolly's mother was, um, she was creative in her own way of sort of financial, figuring out what to do financially. She opened her home to boarders. And one of those boarders was Aaron Burr, who was a friend of James Madison. James Madison saw Dolly on the street and thought she was cool and, and I think and we're losing. Go ahead. I think we're losing. They, Go ahead, Betty. Continue. 
Zoom is funky today. Go ahead. Uh oh. <clears throat> You're fine. You're fine. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, they married. They dated a few times and got married. They introduced in um, seventeen ninety got married in 1794 and they were one of the successful couples in DC. They're known as America's first power couple because they just worked, you know, they knew the power of the mind and the politics. And she knew the power of and they used that together. And I like to tell a famous, um, well, I don't know, it's really actually not famous. Let me famous right now. Uh, <laughs> Dolly have these movies that was kind of open houses. They were every win from supposedly from three to five, often went and just everybody was so very crowded and became known as Dolly's squeezes. Uh. And, you know, if, but James wanted to use them uh, politically. He wanted to get people to talk to so he could convince them to his point of view. So these things were crowded and he was short, she was tall. But she wore fancy turbans with large feathers on the top, like plumes of feathers on the top. So he could find her in a room easily and he could signal to her which guest he wanted her to bring over to him so he could kind of politic. And so he, no, he used that party to, for his political means. And then if he didn't succeed at the party, Dolly would give what was called dove dinners. And those were the wives of the congressmen and so she would work them at these dove dinners to try to get them to persuade their husbands to uh, come to James's point of view. Absolutely fascinating. I understand they had a wine cellar and he collected from all over the world. Uh, was that unusual at the time, Betty, for, for people to collect wines from all over the world? We're well, talking, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, wine was uh, widely used. Um, uh, throughout the colonies, especially in in Virginia, but James Madison was the connoisseur and the collector. He's the one that really collected wines from all over the world, from not just the usual, you know, France and Italy, but Algeria and Germany and just any wine producing country that that he knew of. And he would, um, con he had his own sort of wine dealers in these different countries, but he would also use some of the diplomats to make inroads to him. And he even got access to some people's private collection. So it, it's very interesting and to me very surprising that when they fled the White House during the War of 1812, he left behind what was then valued at $80,000 in wine. And today that would be $2 million. I can't even conceive of wow. $2 million worth of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Here I'm telling you to go out and buy a bottle of something off the shelf for, for New Year's Eve 2020. 
Betty, your connection's going in and out, but we got about 95% of what you were saying. So you're good. But I did post a phone number for the station. If you want to write it down, it's in the chat. If you want to write it down in case your Zoom drops, I want you to call and Josh will put you on by a phone because we want you here for the rest of the show. Susan, I want you to respond, please. Any comments about this First, first lady, the power couple, how they use wine, her dove dinners, how she worked the wives. She was quite a politician on her own. Susan, thoughts? I know you have some. I'll tell you honestly, you know, one of the questions that people ask authors often is, you know, who, if you could have dinner with anybody or lunch with anybody, who would you have lunch with? My standard answer is Eleanor Roosevelt, but I might have to change it to Dolly Madison. <laughs> because she, she sounds like she knows what she's doing. She really does. I thought, mm, that sounds, that sounds interesting. I would like to know Dolly. I would like to know Dolly much more than I would like to know James. Honestly, he can have his wine. Let me talk to Dolly and her friends, right? Because at, at that time, women were not known for their ability to be assertive. We all had to, you know, work behind the scenes and let the men think of it themselves, right? That doesn't. That's not to say that she wasn't doing just as much politicking as he was, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there that woman put those feathers in her turban. Absolutely, she she wore turbans with tall feathers so he could find her in the crowd instead of ringing a little bell or saying, "Darling, I'm here." Right, exactly. Interesting. So they they had like they had a thing that they were working. And I like that. I like that well, very much. Here's something else that, that Betty sent me in her notes. This is interesting. Dolly sat at the head of the table and James sat in the middle of one side. So she presided. That is a position of power. Usually that's the papa. That's the daddy. And, and uh, Betty also said that they had two tablecloths, fine china and crystal, nine platters and bowls, four to at six. Least. At <laughs> least four. Listen to this, everybody. Four to six wines were served with each course. The first course was soup, fish, fowl, meats, and vegetables. Meats and fowl, the first course in, in yeah, okay. The, the first tablecloth came off, and then the second course, tablecloth went up. And then they had sweet pies, pudding, custard, jellies, cakes, and ice cream. That was the second course, ice cream and cake. And the, then the second tablecloth came off before dessert. Dessert was fruit and nuts served on the bare wood table. I Betty, I, I don't know what to say when I read that. The ice cream came before the fruit and nuts. I think the fruit and nuts were the palate cleanser, for goodness sake. Anyway, very, very interesting. Thank you for the research. I, I appreciate that. Interesting to see how they lived, right? I, I want to go to, I want to switch gears and bring us a little more up to date now. And Susan, I wanted to read, Betty, I think you'll get a kick out of this. I wanted to read a little bit from, let me get rid of this here. The notes popped up. I want to read a little bit from chapter one of your book, Arresting Rendition. Susan, you want to tell us what this is about? Set the scene before I read just a little bit. Sure. Go ahead. Um, it's the second book of nine about a group of friends, um, guys, but they're actually trans guys. They're mm -hmm. people who were born women, but have chosen to live their lives in a different way. And they, and, and the sort of leader of the pack decides that he's going to get serious about his ladies. So now the other eight of them have decided they have to find wives, girlfriends, wives, seriously. So this is the second book. And, um, Dex is the is the guy in the story, and he's the head of IT at Tufts University. And he meets a girl named Mary. 
Okay. May I read a little bit from the opening of chapter one? Betty, listen up. I think you're going to enjoy this. Very interesting. Susan always starts with a provocative first sentence. Let me just drop the first sentence on all of you, and then you'll see what I mean. Only another true femme could possibly appreciate my current position. But you see, I genuinely had no choice. Now talk about an opening sentence for a book, Susan. This is absolutely loaded because you've got the concept of a true femme is what is true femme? Okay, you brought that up. Current position, we don't know where this femme is. I had no choice. It sounds like there was a dilemma. There was a challenge. So you've got us wondering, at least some of us, on at least three levels of what led to this place. What is the position? Is it a physical location? It is a social position. What is the challenge? And what is a true femme doing in a predicament at all? So let me read a little bit more. Walking through Davis Square in Somerville. Is this Somerville Mass near Boston? Yes, yes, yes. I lived in Cambridge. I know North Cambridge. Remember Somerville. Walking through Davis Square in Somerville. I remember that on a shiny fall day, a few weeks after the start of school. And right after I had a fab manicure at Julie Nail the salon that's been there since I was in high school, I snagged a glimpse of this guy. Hmm, maybe not guy per se, maybe man. Maybe I hope geek butch, so adorable that I follow him the whole way down Elm Street, across the spoked intersection, along College Avenue, to the dainty Somerville Library, stalking him through the stacks, perhaps a loose usage even now. We were in the text section. How did I do with the read, Susan? Very well. Very, very well. Thank you. So here we are in in short paragraphs, and I still have no idea what's going on, but I'm intrigued. So give us a little more. You want to give us just a little bit of the plot? We We have time. A little bit more about what happens in this book? Sure. So it turns out that the the woman who is stalking him in in the stacks is a graduate student in theater at Tufts. Tufts has an MA program in theater. Uh, mostly in theater history. And um, she is someone who has turned her back on her very traditional Jewish upbringing, co- uh, uh, conservative Jewish upbringing, to, because she was abused by her husband. And mm. she, go, she goes back to school because her children have said to her, get out of here, mom. He's going to kill you. Get out of here. Mm. And she's healing and she's finding out who she is away from religious tradition, away from her family, away from everything on her own in Boston. And these two connect. And then somebody um, hits her son with a car. Mm. And she discovers that it is the machinations of the man who her her ex-husband works for and he's trying to punish her ex-husband and she turns into dolly madison she turns into (laughs) a powerhouse and she says oh no not on my watch not on my watch this is not happening and so she lets her husband have it in the meantime she's falling crazy in love with this guy and it turns out that she's a dancer and she's been teaching people dance for years and years and years, and her favorite kind of dance on the whole wide world is strip tea. <laughs> so she teaches all the girlfriends how to stri- how to clean strip teas in front of these guys. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of 
some people call it the synchronicity. Some people say there are no coincidences. Betty, Susan already knows this from being on my show before. I never pair my guests on the same topic or the same métier, if you will, the same type of writing or the same type of creativity or art or whatever or background. And here, Susan, the book I happened to pick up, she sent me uh, several, is based in Boston. And you were a pediatrician based in Boston, Betty. And you talked about the power couple and the first first lady, Dolly Madison, and how powerful she was and how Oh, manipulative she was. She knew how to work her crowd. And Susan is talking about this woman would be like Dolly Madison. And I, and then the Griot and Betty starts out talking about she's her family's oral historian. And Susan says, I have a Griot. What, Susan? What is the There are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. I needed to meet this woman. Not only that, but Betty just said she lives in Santa Fe. My favorite ex-husband lives in Santa Fe, and I bet he'd love to meet her. So there you go. There, there might be an introduction there. I want to read just a little bit more. Yes, there are there are no mistakes. There are no coincidences. I want to read just a little bit more about um, the description of Dex uh, that's coming out of this Mary pre-Dolly. And by the way, everybody, if you remember Dolly Madison ice cream, which doesn't exist anymore, big company bought it. I think they closed it out. It was D-O-L-L-Y, but the original Dolly Madison is D-O-L-L-E-Y. And there was a Dolly Madison bakery, I think somewhere in the Boston area years ago that was bought out. So there was a bakery, but not an ice cream factory. Just had to clear that one up. I just want to read a little bit from this very small paragraph. Susan, your writing is so beautifully. She says, his face was beautifully symmetrical, deep set eyes behind black framed Clark Kent glasses, hair a smidge too long and a lot uncombed, like he'd run his fingers through it one too many times trying to solve a problem for some professor. He wore a blue Oxford cloth shirt buttoned right to the neckline, topped with a pert bow tie and black and cardinal MIT colors. Over that, a gray cable knit sweater of good quality, maybe cashmere, not the usual geek sweater fare. <laughs> I, so what would be, what would geek sweater fare be, Susan? What would he have been wearing, wearing if he was a true geek? Oh, maybe a cardigan or a sweater vest, not like in a pattern that was really unfortunate. You know, a lot of a lot of geeks are not like fashion plates, but Dex is a serious fashion plate because he was a foster care kid. So that when he finally grew up and made good and got out of that system, he said, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm treating myself well. I'm treating myself and everybody around me well. I deserve the best. Everyone else deserves the best. And that's an amazing place to, to come to from the foster care system where he where he was ping-ponged family to family to family. They tried to steal his scholarship to MIT, but oh darn, he just turned 18 and they couldn't get their hands on it. Oh, oh darn, the privilege of being the novelist. I have to tell you both years ago, not, not bragging, I don't know if it's bragging rights, but years ago, I qualified to become a member of Mensa. My IQ, one of the tests, I was over their limit and I joined Mensa. I don't know if it's for life or whatever. And I, there was a Mensa mixer somewhere at a hotel somewhere in, in New York City. I was living in, on Long Island. And I went, took the train and then I went. And I was overwhelmed by the pocket protectors the boys were wearing <laughs> with the yep. pens trying to not ca- let the pens bleed onto their white shirts. And some of them had lunch boxes their moms had packed. And, and the typical pickup line was, 
oh, uh, I haven't been out of the house much recently, and my mother brought me here. We were probably late teens, and I said, so much for being a mess. I'm never, I'm never going back, and I'm not going to tell. I have a card somewhere. I don't know. Betty, is, is that a badge of honor, being a Mensa member? Do you know? I don't know anymore. Oh, I think it is. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> I mean, these are geniuses. Oh, okay. Well, I must have been on the on the, the entry level of the geniuses. But it was not necessarily socially. Right. Oh, socially. Right. That's why I was thinking of the Clark Kent glasses, but the beautiful sweater, the cashmere sweater. And you didn't see if there had been anybody in a cashmere sweater there that night, I probably would have would have survived the lunchbox and just asked him for his number or talked to him, but couldn't wait to get out of there. What can I tell you? Back so I have, a, I have a question. Oh, I have a question for both of you. I, I read this question on a website about women who are very successful. And I consider each of you to be very successful because Betty, you've written a wonderful book about your heritage. So much research as you described went into it. You've done your homework about Dolly and James and their wonderful dinner parties. And I have great respect. Plus you were a pediatrician for 35 years. And if that doesn't deserve a badge of courage, I don't know what does because Amen. I have relatives in the pediatric field and I know you deal as much with the parents and extended mm -hmm. family as you do with it. You're really treating the parents who happen to have a sick child. I know. So I, I know a pediatric GI who is struggling through this profession right now. And it's, it can be, especially with telemedicine, as they say in French, it ain't easy, let me tell you. So let's go with that. And Susan, you have had so many, you wore, wear so many hats and you have, I wouldn't even say you've reinvented yourself. You just keep adding to your invention of who you are. I don't think anything was, I don't want to be that anymore. I want to be this. A lot of people, oh, I didn't like who I was and I want to be somebody. You didn't want to be somebody else. You want to be more and more and more. So you just keep adding to your invention. I'm not going to say reinvention with you. I just, just dawned on me. There was nothing wrong with what you were doing. It's just let me do more. Like That's I'm right. a, drummer, a drummer and an artist in addition to a broadcaster and a former mainframe computer programmer and Yes, and a playwright and all that. We just keep adding, right, Betty? We keep adding to who we are. And I think that is a badge of courage. So I have a question, as I say, I was trying to say, I got all mixed up and all caught up in this circular logic, this tautology, if you will. I read on a website, website uh, somebody has a, a very famous female author uh, where she interviews women about what they have in their purse. If they were to leave the house right now, what would be the three most important things in their purse? Now, I don't know if people carry purses anymore. If you carry a, a knapsack or a paper bag or a, or a satchel or or a canvas bag, or I don't know what people carry. I carry a big purse, whether I fill it or not. My purses have to be big enough to carry the 12.9 inch iPad. Because I take my iPad when I leave. If I go anywhere like to the hairdresser where I need to sit and wait for the red to cook. I have to have something to do. So I play words with friends on my big iPad. So I don't buy purses that don't fit the big iPad. That's just the way it is. And you don't want sticking out because you don't want people seeing what's in there. You want to be a little bit private. So let's go to you, Betty. I'm going to pick one item. You give me one item and then Susan one and one from Betty. And let's the top three things I would find in your purse as you get ready to leave the house tomorrow morning, if you have anywhere to go. Betty, what would we find in your purse? Number one, most important thing. My mask. Oh, you know, absolutely. Time relevant 
topic. Absolutely. Susan, you can't use the same thing. We we assume you would have a mask, maybe. I'm not getting personal. Okay, Susan would have a mask, and I would too. Probably two masks, because it depends if I want the red one or the black one with the flower without the flower. So, yes, not a fashionista. I just like my whatever my mood is. Susan, what would we find in your purse? My glasses. It's a public oh. service. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Mine would only be on my face. They wouldn't be in, but, but the, the sunglasses that go over these, I gave up contact lenses soon after COVID because I, I broke the last contact and I figured, why would I spend that money just to, to do what I do, which is work from home as a broadcaster? What do I need contacts for? Who's going to see me until they invented Zoom? And I actually like the glasses. So I haven't paid for contacts in six months. The time will come. Betty, item number two in your purse, we've gotten uh, stowed away the masks and the glasses. So what would we find out about your personality? What's in your purse? Betty, Kirst? Oh, this one's revealing. It's my to-do list. Ah, is it on paper? Is it on a tablet? Is it on a No, phone? it's on paper. Really? And is it on special stationery or just blank paper? No, it's just one of those little five and dime notebooks that'll fit in my purse. And do you, do you write in pencil or ink or Sharpie? Whatever my hand falls on when I reach into the purse. And what would you be most likely to pull out for a writing instrument? A colored Sharpie, a, a regular number two pencil oh, or a pen? No, no. <clears throat> no, it's going to be a pen because if it's... then. It, not a pencil because I've got to be committed to getting it done. See, see what we learned about that from the writing instrument. We learned your to-do list requires you to be committed because that's the way you use it. I like that. Susan can't use a to-do list. What would we find in your purse? Susan Corso? Lipstick. Of course. Me too. <laughs> How many? Two. The one I'm currently wearing and a backup. Same color or different colors? Different colors, depending. Okay. Well, I will tell you that the lipstick I like the best was discontinued in the oh, stores about eight that years annoying? ago. Until you find it on Amazon and you order two or three or four at a time and keep them in the drawer in your bathroom or in your makeup case so that you never run out. But yes, they, they kept the number. They renamed the name, but it's the same. Try finding that in a store. Uh-huh. It's like finding nail color that's been removed. I know, I know. Still awesome. looking for SE 447 and they don't make it anymore. But I gave up manicures too with COVID. So wonderful. Betty, so we have a to-do list. We have a mask. We have glasses. We have lipstick. What else would be in your purse, Betty Kears? Well, the last one is something I was one of the last human beings to buy. And um, that is a smartphone. A smartphone. Okay. Why do you say you were one of the last? Oh, you mean you were one of the, the laggards. You were a tech I laggard. La yeah, I was attached to my flip phone, but then I left it in London. And so I didn't have a phone at all. And so when I went to buy another flip phone, they laughed at me. <laughs> I'm not laughing Aww. at you. I'm laughing with you because somewhere along the line, you probably started laughing. So what, Betty? have to ask yes. what year was what year was this that you gave up lost the flip i think she did on purpose susan susan says there are no mistakes when do you purposely lose your flip flown in london that's a heck of a story laura legs is going to go there and she'll find it but laura don't bring it back <laughs> betty what year was it you finally moved to a smartphone i have to know it was 2018 oh that's not too bad so what kind of a i, I don't need the brand but did you have a fancy case on your smartphone is there a color or a pattern on anything interesting 
Oh yeah, it has butterflies. And it's, it's colorful, and that's so that I can find it in my purse. There you go. <laughs> I like the feel. I got the, of course, the red case on mine. See the red apple case? And mm -hmm. it has almost a little bit of like a dry, rubbery feel. It's very smooth to the touch. And I can always grab into the big purse and find it just by touch. I believe everything in a person's, I didn't say a lady's, a person's purse, or satchel, knapsack, backpack, whatever you have, should have a, and it's distinctive feel to it so that you can find it without having to see it in the dark. Everything should have a specific texture or a fabric or something that makes it identify. I'm massaging my phone here. Susan, what's the third item we would find in your purse? A gold American Express card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going anywhere with no money. Well, nope. good for you. But now, okay. Would we find any coins? Uh, yes, but they're not coins for spending. They're um, like talismans. Someone uh, I care about very much gave me his one-year um, AA token mm -hmm. that I carry as a as a good luck thing. Um, and I have an old subway token because you can't get those anymore. No. Um, and a Susan B. Anthony dollar that my mother gave me. Interesting. So this is not spending change. This is this is uh, iconic change. Do you all know there's a tradition? I don't know if it's a New York tradition that when somebody gets a new car, you're supposed to toss some change from your purse on the floor of the front passenger seat on the on the carpet in front and that it should be kept in the car as good luck. Did anybody ever hear that? I have. <clears throat> yes. Betty, you've ever heard that? I think it's a superstition. I have not, but I'll do that with my next car. There you go. I think that was in the days when we needed quarters for token booths before we had the easy pass. <laughs> okay, 22 quarters. Who's got it? Mary in the back. I know you got 20 quarters. Don't use them on the washing machine. We need them for the tolls. Anybody remember paying tolls with? Yes, yes, oh, yes. yes. Okay, count your change before you leave. Interesting. So we've got, okay. So we don't have, do we have any paper money, Susan? I don't want to know, but you have the gold card and you have. Um, yes, tokens. paper money. My mother, when I was uh, 12, my mother gave me a hundred dollar bill for my birthday. And she said, you keep this. And if you spend it, you replace it. That way you'll always have money. I think the Yiddish word for that is your pushka. That's you keep a little <laughs> bit of secret, Betty, you keep a little bit of secret spending money somewhere yep. in your bra and a little purse in the back of your shoe. Because you never know. You, might you never that. know. Right. And I remember uh, there was a man named Lenny who was a, a vocal coach on Long Island. And I took lessons from him for a while. And he coached a lot of young, very, very wonderful singers in Broadway songs and jazz. And Lenny used to bring his his students to my TV studio and we would put on a a, a celebration of them and we would have five or six of them singing each one or two songs. And Lenny liked, was very generous man. He liked to pay me and the staff. Now, technically at access TV, you don't, you don't make money. It's all volunteering, but he would always slip something and say to me, share it with your team. You know, the camera person, the audio person, whatever, tell them how much I appreciate it. Well, he would give me, he was very generous. At one point he slipped me a $50 bill plus money for the others. I never spent it to this day. Susan, it is folded up inside of one of those little lipstick cases that you carry in the purse where you open it up, you snap it, and there's a mirror inside. Uh-huh. Remember, Betty, do you ever have any of those? The little lipstick cases, they're molded and they put one lipstick inside. Yes. Remember yeah. those? Mm-hmm. I have some in I remember Mad Money. 
Pushkit, that's mad money. Yes. Uh-huh. That's, that's like that's if you ever what my mother stranded, would call it mad money. You ever get stranded or you find that lipstick of your dreams or you find the guy and you want to buy him a bow tie. I'm making this up. Ladies, we're just about out of time. I have so enjoyed speaking with both of you. Betty, you're the newcomer to, to Cool Conversations. I hope you've had a good time, Betty Kears. Yes, very much. I'm glad. Very, fun. very. I, I warned you we would have fun. Susan, what'd you think? Was this as much fun as the first time you were on? Absolutely. Um, was it more fun? Yes, it was. <laughs> it was more fun. I have more Dolly Madison. Uh, and I have more in common with Betty than I had with the other guests. Well, I want you all to say, we need to, I want you to say thank you to Josh. Everybody say thank you, thank Josh. You Josh. Thank, you, thank Josh. you, Josh. Josh is our engineer. He takes very good care of us. I am Radio Red, AKA to be formal. This is Read My Lips, Cool Conversations with Creatives. Lovely to speak with Betty Kearse and with Susan Corso. I'm going to wish you both well. Be safe, be smart, be savvy. And I don't know about your car, but mine's still getting three months to the gallon. So there you go. Read My Lips, everybody wave goodbye. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Read My Lips Radio presented by the Voice America Variety Channel. Tweet your questions and comments to at Radio Red 777. Join host aka Radio Red again next Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a positively cool creative week. Again, for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For-